This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3439 for Thursday, the 7th of October 2021. Today's show is entitled, Linux in Laws S01E40, the one with the BSDs. It is the 40th show of Monochromic and is about 97 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, the other one operating system, to rule them all. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever fancies you tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mom! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusty guide dog, unless on speed, and QT Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. This is Linux in Laws, Season 1, Episode 40. The one with the BSDs. Good evening, Martin. How are things? Hey, Chris. Things are fine. If slightly on the warm side for the UK. Yeah, um, I heard <laughs> I hear, that. I hear you have yeah. some water in your your direction. Yes, <laughs> in, in, indeed, very much so. Um, I think yeah, we have a little bit too much of of water running around, and apparently, you still have to turn down the heating in the UK. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Excellent. But this is not a show about weather for, for for some strange reason. This is a show about open source software. And tonight we have a special treat because we do have a selected panel of BSD people on the show. So without further ado, why don't we do why don't we do a short intro round? Then why don't you go first? Hi, my name's Dan Langell. I got involved with open source software in about, uh, I think it was 1995. Someone gave me some FreeBSD CDs and uh, an old computer, and that got me um, a firewall because I'd just gotten ADSL, and things have just gone downhill from there. Mark, you're next. 
Hey, sorry about the accent. I'm French, in case this isn't apparent. Uh, I'm Mark Espy, so I've been working with OpenBSD since 1998. Uh, I've been dabbling in open source software for a bit longer. And at that point, I got uh, Namiga, and I wanted to install something on it. And the only operating system with decent installation instruction was OpenBSD, and the rest is history. As they say, Patrick, I've been I, I had been I had been using Linux for about nine years. Started using OpenBSD four years ago. I think the main reason I was ever interested in exploring other operating systems is just finding an interface that I was happy with. I see. So that just about sums me up. A, a, a true defector on the show. We love this. Nia, you're, you're next. Hi, um, my name is Nia Alari. I'm, I've been a NetBSD developer for the past three years. I've been using NetBSD for the past six years. And um, I, I work on some quite strange and diverse areas of the system, probably mostly known for my work on the audio stack and graphics related things. And last but not least, Martin, my co-host, how did you come to BSD, Mr. Visser? Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, BSD is obviously something from my university days, which is many, many, many years ago. But uh, yeah, not forgotten. Let's put it that way. What about yourself? Per per perfect, perfect, perfect. I actually came across BSD when I was still almost a child, um, for want of a better expression. We had a BSD system running in the Polytech where I did my first degree, but you're talking about at least 30 years back. I've been using free BSD, as a matter of fact, for about 10 years in the shape, shock and awe of an operating system called macOS. But we're going to go, go, but we're going to go into these details in a minute. Before we kind of discuss this kind of thing on a technical, on a more technical level, what would the Current, well, maybe we should shed some more light basically before we, as I said, before we go into the details, we should shed some light on the history of BSD in terms of initially there was system five. That was the primeval, I'm tempted to say, Unix system back in the sixties, late sixties, I might add. And then the Berkeley software distribution came along and then we arrived at OpenBSD, FreeBSD, NetBSD, Dragonfly BSD, and I'm sure that I forgot a few BSD flavors. So volunteers first, um, who can talk about the history of BSD or who wants to talk about the history of BSD? Well, I can do some parts. There is some stuff that I know about that I haven't actually lived. Uh, which is the origin of BSD, which is what basically, uh, as far as I know, uh, Thompson went on sabbatical from uh, Bell Labs at the time, and he came to Berkeley, and he worked with people there, and uh, they started this thing, which was uh, BSD. And it became... 386 BSD a uh, few years later uh, as the first try uh, of being an open source software, but it didn't quite work because there were still parts that were uh, actually owned by Bell Labs. And so uh, uh, lawsuit problems ensued and this gave a little gap where a guy in Finland called Linus Torvalds managed to sneak in and create Linux. 
more or less. And uh, when the lawsuit was resolved and the parts which were missing were actually written, uh, I think uh, that was when FreeBSD started. So I, I leave uh, people from FreeBSD to talk about that. Uh, at about the same point, some people decided to port it to other uh, uh, platforms. As well, this was the origin of uh, NetBSD. Among NetBSD developers, there was this guy called uh, Fiodirat, which had something of a temper. And uh, it ended up uh, in a fight between uh, Tio and the other people, uh, the other founding favors of, uh, of NetBSD, let's say. And uh, Tio got uh, outed from the project and he decided to found his own project, which is how OpenBSD started. Interesting. Well, all these different BSD flavors, and of course, there's also Dragon, Dragonfly BSD, which we, which we may go into in, in, in a minute. All these different BSD flavors, FreeBSD, free OpenBSD, and NetBSD have different kind of focus areas. If memory, if my fading memory or fading memory rather is anything to go by, maybe somebody from the panel basically, or it, due to the fact that we have actually different Panel members of diff of the different flavors on the on the on the recording session. Why don't we kind of shed some more lights, uh, shed some more light on the focus areas of these of these different flavors of the BSD operating system? I, I actually use um, FreeBSD at work quite a lot, despite working on NetBSD in my free time. And um, from my perspective, FreeBSD is marketed much more towards like high performance server usage. Um, even though the the other BSDs are good choices for that as well, um, and but at work we actually use it for um, embedded um, devices, and NetBSD is also a great choice for that, and has lots of tooling for working on embedded devices and routers and things like that. And um, I think NetBSD has kind of an interesting history of um, being focused on supporting lots of platforms, but also just as a platform for research and interesting ideas and it's achieved a quite good balance of performance security as well as having some very very um unique and interesting design decisions like um like rump for example what is rump um rump is uh, a kind of model for how kernels can be almost dissected, I suppose. It's possible to run parts of the NetBSD kernel in user space or on bare metal for um, for bare metal applications. You can use NetBSD drivers or I think the, um, the GNU herd people were looking into using NetBSD drivers in their microkernel just by using a NetBSD ROM kernel as, as a service. And um, it's it's quite a unique design, and I don't think there's anything else quite like it that exists, as far as I'm aware. So it's not a true microkernel; it's more like a Hubbard approach. I suppose it's a monolithic kernel that's also a library operating system. Wow. Okay. Given the fact that library operating systems, are, sorry, um, I reckon not everybody on, in, in the in the dear and 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 cherished listener, listenership is an operating system expert. Maybe we should explain what library operating systems are. Is somebody volunteering from the audience, or should I basically take a shot at it? 
Okay. I'd, I'd be interested in seeing what you have to say. Okay. In that case, yeah. Let me let me make the few mistakes, and then you can correct me and fill in the gaps. <laughs> Library operating systems. Essentially, you take a small kernels-like structure, as in code base, and package the operating system on top of it, meaning that normally an operating system is divided into kernel user space. A library operating system basically has the operating system services co-located to the application. Library operating systems typically do not differentiate between the kernel and the user space, leaving the door wide open to all sorts of interesting and funny security challenges, I suppose. <laughs> Let's put it this way. But library operating systems do have a few advantages. For example, you, had, you do not have a context switch between user and kernel space. The packaging can be quite compact and dense because you are essentially building a, a full application stack, stack, including the operating system, just for one purpose. So library operating systems have have found quite a f- significant following on them, to say, in the area of embedded systems, where you typically have only one app running on your OS stack. Now, where did I go wrong? <laughs> I think that I think that's a very good um, explanation. Uh, um, I would also add that with something like Rump, there's um, the ability to use um, parts of the kernel as a user space application. So, for example, you can use the file system drivers to um, mount a file system without touching the kernel at all, really. And um, also, there's a quite a large test suite for NetBSD that takes heavy advantage of this by running device drivers and, and so on as rump servers in user space to test them. Now, in that case, I reckon that this is quite significant in the embedded space because that is what, that is typically the area where, where library operating systems and unikernels are used in, if memory serves correct. Yeah, I suppose so, but um, I think that I think the biggest use of Rump currently is as a is as a testing tool, just to ensure the um, continued stability and reliability of the operating system. I suppose. Okay. Now, speaking of of embedded systems, that has typically been a domain for something called Linux, the Raspberry Pis of the world. And other single board computers typically run some sort of Linux operating system. Is there any opinion on the panel with regards to the BSD penetration of the sector? And I'm, te- I'm always tempted to say <laughs> that there is, of course, another embedded space called mobile where, funny enough, FreeBSD has gained a significant following, although I reckon not many people know it. If because if they if they are using something called iOS, essentially they are using a small microkernel which with a stripped down FreeBSD personality on top of it, called QNX or something. Not QNX. Sorry, I'm 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 lacking the acronym here, but it's it's essentially something um, based on something called Apple called Darwin. If I'm not completely mistaken, I think parts of QNX are using the NetBSD networking stack. I mean, if you look in their cop- in their um, copyright statements, there's a lot of NetBSD Foundation copyrights. And um, yeah, I think 
I think um, iOS is probably mostly FreeBSD, but there's there's bits from everywhere in there probably, <laughs> especially if you go digging deep into where every single tool comes from. Um, same goes for, I reckon, generally speaking, uh, same goes for Darwin, generally speaking, or the foundation of something called OS X. And needless to say, this goes back to something called NextOS. But we do not have Claudio on the show, do we? Not today, no. We, we, we keep trying. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't. No. Uh, Martin, you wanna you wanna shed some light on on next phase or the and the history, or maybe I should do this. Um, no, no, you go for it. You're yes, good, good, since uh, we don't have Claudia, you're the best second one. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean there, there is of course something called next phase that a certain guy called. Steve Jobs came about, or kind of invented whatever you want to call it, or came up with rather. It's probably the best expression. When Steve basically left Apple, or had to leave Apple for, for want of a better expression in the mid-80s, he set out and founded a company called Next. The idea was to provide education systems, pretty much, based on an open source stack to the masses. Um, hence, this Next Cube was born, and it was running something called Nextwares. So what Steve and the engineers did was essentially take a microkernel in the shape of Mark 2.5 or 3, I can't even remember, put a free BSD personality on top of it, and put on top of that stack a windowing system and some other components. So after a few years, Apple decided to buy Next, Next, Next Computers or whatever the name of the company was at the time. So... Steve Jobs was reinstated, reinstantiated as a CEO, and pretty much so OS X, what we know now as macOS, was born. And over the last thirty years, that hasn't really changed. I mean, you have different CPU architectures. I mean, the first one was PowerPC, then Apple moved to Intel, and now they are back to risk architecture called Apple Silicon, which essentially is an, is an ARM core, heavily customized, of course, but still running OS X as it used to be on the lower layers back then. So Apple actually has, has gone full circle here. And if you take a look at, as we just discussed, at iOS, Essentially, it's a stripped-down version of OS X. So going back to the embedded space, the original question, many people actually use BSD without knowing it. Given the fact that indeed the rest is pretty much Linux-dominated, what is the panel's opinion about uh, BSD in the embedded space, and where do you see this going? I think there is something that needs to be said about uh, licensing issues there. Because basically, unless I'm mistaken, I let the other people in the panel uh, voice their own opinion. One reason we stick with the BSD is not only because of uh, technical issues, but because we do believe in free software where you can take your piece of software and use it anywhere, including commercial products. And that's a good point on uh, some aspects, and that's a bad point on some other aspects. The big difference between BSD as, as permissive licensing and something called copyleft licensing, of course, as probably the majority of our listeners do know, Linux is licensed under something called GPN, public license, whereas in the BSD 
operating system family is licensed under either two or three clause BSD, which happens to be a permissive license. So without going into the details, because there was a show recently on, on set licensing issues done by us, the main difference is basically that the BSD license, um, prescribe anything, and hence the term permissive license, because as Mark rightly pointed out, you can do pretty much whatever you want with the code, whereas in the GNU public license, alongside any similar copyleft license, actually prescribes a couple of things, namely, for example, that you have to publish any modifications that you made to the code base. So you are obliged to publish, to to make the source code available of your code base once you've touched GPL license code base. That is, of course, not the case with the more permissive licenses like the BSDs because these licenses typically just say you have to give the original author credit, you have to incorporate a copy of the license, and that's pretty much it. Apart from that, you're pretty much free to do whatever you want with the code. Any other opinions? on the embedded space before we move on. I don't really like talking about licensing too much because it's a quite a controversial subject and people get very upset with you. But um, I think I think in, in my ideal world, everything would be public domain, but we don't live in my ideal world. And um, I'd also just add that um, if if you um, look up the history of GPL enforcement, if you, in particular, a name I would look for is Robert Landley, who worked on BusyBox. His opinion was, after suing lots of different companies over the GPL, he didn't get any useful code out of them. It was mostly just terrible stuff. Um, I would add something on the more technical side of the embedded space, say in the ARM world, in the in Linux on ARM, there's lots of like custom vendor kernels and things like that that um, a lot of people are very upset over and think are very buggy and bad. And I'd just just say in the BSD world, that kind of doesn't exist. Everything is mainline. Everything is in the mainline kernel. Uh, what exactly does that mean? I suppose that everything is developed and integrated into one tree and we and the contribution process is generally not very difficult like I've heard some absolute horror stories where it's taken years for patches to be accepted into the Linux kernel um I, I'd like to think that we're a bit better at that isn't it called uh, the loadable kernel modules is what Linux supports. I know at least one, I know OpenBSD doesn't support those, but I think that was is what kind of makes things like, you know, proprietary NVIDIA drivers possible. Whereas, you know, OpenBSD, possibly the same with the other BSDs, but I know OpenBSD isn't really kind of this... There's no technical course facility or it's not engineered to kind of really allow that kind of deep system integration, you know, driver, third party drivers like that. I think something um, like that. Modules are used much more often on FreeBSD. On NetBSD, they're quite well supported, but mostly everything is in the main kernel binary and you only use modules for things like. Um, Linux compatibility would be a good example. You have to load the Linux compatibility module if you want to use that. Now, that's a very interesting subject. Maybe you can elaborate on uh, on, on that because 
uh, yes, uh, BSD does support a little compatibility layer. Uh, yeah, um, but it's a thing that exists in FreeBSD and NetBSD, although I think the implementations are quite different. And it's just okay. It's it's just a layer that um, can translate Linux syscalls to BSD syscalls. It's it's um, f f fairly straightforward, really. <laughs> I think, in including fancy stuff like control groups and namespaces. I, I think. Um, For my purposes, when I'm using Linux compatibility, I'm using it to play games. I, I don't know too much about the more advanced side of things there. The reason, yeah, the reason why I'm asking, because these are the two control mechanisms that allow something called containers to run on Linux. Because these are the kernel mechanisms you need. BSD systems, and correct me if I'm wrong, have something similar called jails? Yeah, jails are a free BSD thing. The other BSDs mostly just have virtual machines currently. Um, is my understanding. I hear Illumos supports Linux containers. I can talk about FreeBSD jails for days. Um, give us the abridged version, please. Basically, <laughs> pardon me, FreeBSD jails have been around for about at least 10 years. Others can correct me. Um, they're, they're built into FreeBSD. Um, they're designed for you to be, they were, their original purpose was to allow someone to run different versions of the same, uh, web server all on the same host instead of having to have 10 hosts. You could put them all on one host, for example. And what I do with it in one example is I run regression testing. So I have, I think seven jails. Each one is running a different version of Postgres or MySQL. They could be running different versions of FreeBSD if I wanted to, but basically I run all that regression testing in a jail. Um, the, the easy way to think of a jail is it's an elaborate CH route. So it's not actually true virtualization, but basically right. when you're in the jail, you can't tell you're in a jail, but you can if you look in certain spots. Basically, I treat a jail as a complete FreeBSD instance. And I, I put in that jail things that I, that I want to run in there and have it completely isolated from everything else. Uh, another interesting thing about jails when you're an admin is if you're the sysadmin of the host, you can see everything in every jail. Uh, if you do PS, for example, you see all the processes running in every jail. Or you can pick one jail and see only the processes in that jail which means theoretically that if you, you have a break-in into a jail, you can see everything they're doing in the jail, but they can't see you at all. They have no concept of anything outside the jail whatsoever. So okay. th think of a jail as being a light virtualization, but it's not virtualization. Yes, um, because the beauty with containers is actually you can limit their resource usage. So, for example, you can tell mm -hmm. a container running on Linux basically only use so many CPU slices. Yep. You can re they, you can confine their main memory. Uh, you can basically control their usage and all the rest of it. So, this these are the main difference between the change root environment mm -hmm. and a true container. You can limit CPU in a jail. You can, okay. Um, yes, and you can say, use this one CPU, and that's it. You're not using any other CPU. Um, I think there are other controls you can add to the jail, but I don't do it because I've never needed to. Okay. Um, 
someone else might be able to elaborate on that. Anybody you using jails? I, Not really, I, but you have by, by about 10 years, uh, basically, I just looked it up and the initial paper from Paul Camp was dated back from 2000. It's been around for 20 years now. Wow. Years. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I was <laughs> wrong. Way wrong. Interesting. I, to give you an idea, I've got, I think, eight hosts and probably 80 jails spread amongst those hosts. Um, I tend to put my database servers in a jail. I tend to put uh, individual websites into a jail if they're self-contained. I have one server that's running two web servers, each one in a different jail, because one is running Nginx and the other one's running Apache. Right. Um, but jails are persistent, as in everything that you write to the file system in a jail stays where it is, whereas containers basically use something called, for example, a unifile system, which mm -hmm. is by definition ephemeral. So if you stop a container, unless you explicitly mount it, mm -hmm. For example, an external mount point to a container, to a container in terms of basically you make a portion of your file system visible inside the container. Every other change inside a container is lost to you. So you stop the container. You have no persistence enabled. The container and its data is gone. Unlike jails, I understand. You could design a jail like that by ha having it be by using ZFS. And I think okay. many, many, many people are running jails on ZFS. It's much easier. You just give each jail their own ZFS file system. And what you could do is, is when, when you stop the jail, uh, you do a rollback on the system it was using. You're back to where you started. Uh, you, you can do that with a clone and then just roll it back to where you were when nice. you started. Okay. You haven't lost, you haven't lost anything. Sorry, you've lost everything that was in the jail, but you still had the original file system mm. that you started from. Which nicely leads us to a very important topics, file systems on BSD. Any um, takers? <laughs> I just wanted to add about the um, running multiple databases thing at the same same time. Well, multiple database versions, I suppose. And I think that was the, originally the reason jails were developed for FreeBSD. But it's it's kind of strange from a NetBSD perspective because the package manager kind of allows doing that without any um, operating system level isolation. It's all done in the package manager. Sorry, I just wanted to add that. that. I think you're, I think no, you're no, talking about. I think you're talking no, about Postgres there, and. We had that problem on FreeBSD for a while, but I think it's gotten much better. It's actually installing them into different um, directories, and I haven't tried it lately. But yeah, I, I do. I do run po Postgres in different jails. I think there's a point to be made here. That is that uh, we are talking about uh, actually different operating systems, but uh, you're focusing on the kernel, but. Uh, all the BSD are usually a full operating system with uh, some differences, like, for instance, NetBSD has got their own package manager with uh, some kind of uh, virtualization, if I remember correctly, some views, if uh, that's still the, the term that you're using. And we have some stuff that's been developed in userland in OpenBSD, like OpenSSH, for instance. 
And uh, in most cases, if you only look at the kernel and the specificities of the kernel, you're going to miss quite a lot about uh, what's going on. It's a big difference compared to the way Linux works, where usually you've got your kernel and you've got your distributions. Uh, the major uh, BSDs, be it uh, NetBSD, FreeBSD, or Open, I don't know much about Dragonfly, so sorry, I won't talk about it uh, all that much. Uh, but usually you have to take the whole system. It's not just the kernel. You have uh, all sorts of stuff that use the, the basic mechanisms, like for instance, on FreeBSD, you've got their new package manager and Poudrier, which uses uh, gels a lot and uh, things like that uh, on OpenBSD and things like, like that on NetBSD. You can't just talk about the kernel most of the time. Or you are missing half the fun, in my opinion. In, indeed. Uh, and, and I do apologize for focusing way too much on my favorite obsession, kernels. Uh, just a quick question, because when, full disclosure, I'm still using every now and then, I'm still using FreeBSD and NetBSD. My understanding, and I'm using ports as, as the main package manager. Apparently, there's more to package management in BSD than ports? Enlighten me, please. I use Poudreur to build my own packages, and I run okay. Poudreur in a jail. Um, basically, if you want packages that use non-default settings, basically, if you're doing make config or show config or, or tweaking any of the settings, each package has its own set, set of settings and they, they have a set of default values. So if you, you want to change that, you can't use the project provided packages. So you either build your own packages um, using Poudrier or use uh, ports. Um, for those unfamiliar, a port is a set of files that allows you to create a package. It's like the set of ins meta instructions that say you get the source from here, you build it using this mechanism, you put these files there, etc. So a port allows you to create a package, um, but once you've got that package, something made from ports and something made from Poudrier uh, is indistinguishable. It's it's the same thing. It, it's just two different ways of getting to the same goal. So oh. both, both Poudrier and Ports use the Ports tree. If I can uh, add a bit of history, that's something that we started in OpenBSD, more or less. Like around uh, 2005 or something like that, uh, you had Ports on uh, all free BSD. Uh, and uh, most of the time, if you wanted to have uh, an application with uh, current stuff, uh, you used to have to check out the port tree, compile what you wanted, and uh, that was it. You, you had uh, everything working when you were lucky. And uh, at about that point, uh, Theo decided that it would be a good idea to actually have binary packages, a bit like uh, Red Hat RPM at that point. And so we started working on uh, making sure that uh, when you compile stuff, you always got the same package. There was some problem com compared to that. And uh, also uh, making sure that you could specify options in a reasonable way. Uh, I know that Dan has been working a lot on uh, the, the infrastructure to make sure that you get all options and uh, all databases related to ports correct. And then, 
I think I was a bit early, but I started working on ways to build packages industrially on OpenBSD. And soon after that, uh, Baptiste Daroussin did the same thing on FreeBSD with Poudrier and PackageNG. So we moved more or less to having a port system where you could compile everything by yourself and you had to compile everything by yourself to a binary package system where uh, it would be easy to to build the same thing and you would only compile stuff in, if you really wanted to tinker with it, but you could use a binary package like uh, like on Red Hat, for instance. I mean, this is... This is the main difference because if you take a look at your typical Linux distribution, apart from maybe Debian or, or Arch, I'm talking about the Red Hats and the, and the Ubuntu's of the world. These are backed by companies and open, and, and for example, OpenSUSE goes without saying, uh, mm-hmm. that have a, a corresponding build infrastructure in the background that basically do packaging. And that goes for CentOS and Fedora as well. I'm just, kind of summarizing them under the Red Hat umbrella. Let's put it this way. How do the BSDs address these infrastructure issues? All of the BSDs um, have a packaging system that descends from free BSD ports, but they've all diverged in very different ways and have very different feature sets. And um, in NetBSD, for example, um, I, I, well, it's the only BSD that doesn't actually use the term ports in NetBSD. It's package source and it produces, well, packages. And um, I think the, the infrastructure is very, diff- very different across BSDs because the different packaging systems have different focuses. For example, pa- package source works on lots of different operating systems and um, FreeBSD ports has also retained lots of customization features, but I think OpenBSD is very focused on pr- producing binaries. So they don't put as much focus on t- onto customizing the build or providing lots of tools for um, building from source because I, I that's think not that's true. discouraged. That's, that's not true at all. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Oh, well, uh, we provide all the tools that you need to, to build from source. We do have some uh, customizations options, but uh, usually we do some kind of, um, uh, let's say, distribution work. Like uh, we have some options that you can use very easily, uh, uh, which are called flavors most of the time. And... Um, if you want to do something else, you can still tinker and you can still build binary packages, but you might be on your own if you run into issues. Uh, if you look at uh, how FreeBSD and OpenBSD do stuff, we are actually very similar uh, for one very simple reason, which is that uh, the people who mostly who did most of the work on uh, OpenBSD and FreeBSD ports are basically me and uh, Baptiste Daroussin, and we talked a lot together. So uh, we don't have the same tools, uh, but we wrote almost everything. But we we shared most of the concepts. You you will find that uh, our packaging tools are rather similar, and uh, most of the changes that we did in OpenBSD uh, happened in FreeBSD as well. Like okay. uh, having a st- staging area to to build packages that's uh, one common uh, point uh trying to have uh, reliable dependencies and uh, stuff like that that's also something that, that we share 
Uh, I know what maybe he does. We, you didn't diverge all that much. The thing that maybe is the biggest difference uh, is that it's probably easier for you to, to, to build stuff that's widely different from uh, official binary packages uh, without any, any pointers in the resulting package that uh, something strange was going on, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there are lots of common points. Uh, we, we all do the more or less the same thing. We all use a huge make file to build a port, for instance. And we still have more or less the, the same steps. You always uh, will do make fetch, uh, make patch, make configure, make build, and uh, make install, more or less. So uh, if you want to tinker with, with ports on all three BSD, uh, you always, always, always have uh, the same options at this point. After that, what you do with your ports, uh, but might be, uh, there might be some differences. I know we have different bulk systems. But going back to, to Mark's point, that brings up a very interesting subject. If I take a look at the supported architectures, um, I see a significant difference between the likes of FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD. So, for example, FreeBSD seems to concentrate mostly on Intel-based architectures, whereas uh, OpenBSD supports many more CPU architectures. And that brings, of course, up a very interesting subject, namely, if you're distributing the binary packages, who takes care of the, of, of the corresponding build toolchain in terms of you have to, either you're doing cross-compiling, or somebody has to provide an infrastructure where you can package as in build packages on. FreeBSD has a package build farm. Every set of packages gets built every two days or so, and it takes about that long to build the entire set of ports. There's roughly 45,000 ports, give or take a few thousand. Um, and those are all built. Now, it, it varies upon what sort of architecture you get. I'm just looking at Apache here, and they build for FreeBSD 11 down to FreeBSD 14 on different packages such as ARM 6, ARM 7, PowerPC 64, wow. okay. I386, um, MIPS. I may be repeating, but it, 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 you can see all these packages listed. And they're all the same version. I, I see 2.446 and I see 2.448 on the newer ones. Um, mm. So it may take, once a, once a new version is committed to the ports tree, it may take two to four days before that package is available from the FreeBSD infrastructure. But if you want to build it yourself, you just refresh your copy of the ports tree uh, CD user ports, dub, 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 Apache 2.4, uh, make and make package and you can build your okay. own package. Uh, in my case, I have Poudrier set up to run nightly. I have a list of packages and a list of the options to use for those packages. And every night, um, I get about 28 different trees built. Um, wow. basically okay. FreeBSD 11.4, 12.2, FreeBSD 13, and a whole lot of different uh, settings 
um, because I have different needs for different things. And that all runs overnight, every night. Interesting. Um, because I can recall... Sorry, Chris, I need yes. to go shortly. Um, yes. Very fascinating so far. Um, I have a couple... Go, on, go ahead. I have one question before I need to go. Uh, I'd like to have the panel's opinion on the single technical reason, as in, obviously, clearly not everybody is is using FreeBSD out there. Uh, we have mentioned ports, we mentioned deals. Uh, what, for, for each of the panel members, would be the single technical reason to choose FreeBSD? FreeBSD. Well, sorry, uh, any BSD. Now is the case to make your, <laughs> the time to make the case for your version of BSD. Indeed. <laughs> By all means, people, go ahead. Yes, thank you, Martin. Sorry, all right. I, I've answered this question many times in the past, and I've summarized it for, for, for myself in response to questions I've received. And I can't say that it's a s single technical thing, but it, it, it's a combination of things, all of which were, which are technical, which from a sysadmin's point of view makes my life much, much easier now that these um, technologies have come together. Number one, ZFS. I've been using it for about 10 years. Okay. It's fully integrated into FreeBSD for that time. And it is the single best thing for me when it comes to using directories. Um, I've I've told people that when you when you go to do a make deer, consider ZFS create. Just it's a different way of thinking of things. Should this be a separate file system? But the next thing is uh, PKG, the packaging system, and on top of that, it's Pudrier that allows me to build my own packages with my own settings, including my own private ports all seamlessly and it's it doesn't make any difference to the operating system that they're using my packages as opposed to freebsd packages and i keep thinking there is a third thing in there from memory and i just can't remember what it was but i'll leave it at those two who wants to go next i can go next uh, i'm going to start with uh, saying that we have more or less the some of the same uh, technical reasons, like uh, our packaging system is about working, uh, ex well, functionally it's the same as FreeBSD and we have build tools that work uh, just as well. It's called DPB instead of Poudrier, but uh, we have builds about every three days, official builds, and I can rebuild my whole system in about two days on, uh, on my cluster at work. I don't have that many machines. <laughs> Uh, so it, uh, it takes about that time. Um, one very nice feature of OpenBSD, which doesn't exist anywhere else for now, is called Pledge. This is probably something you haven't heard about. Uh, it is a beautiful idea for uh, making processes uh, commit to not doing things they should not do. Like, for instance, at the start of a program, you are going to say, uh, I pledge to only do uh, input output on open files and uh, algorithms in memory and nothing else. And after that, your process is going to get killed whenever it tries to open a new file or do a network connection. And uh, it's very similar to stuff like uh, GR Security or Capsicum and FreeBSD. The main difference is that you don't have to specify all the system calls that you want to call or not call. Uh, 
you are just going to say, okay, I want to use this subsystem or that subsystem and everything. And it's uh, beautifully interfaced uh, with uh, C library. And also it goes, uh, the granularity is sometimes uh, smaller than system calls. Like for instance, anybody who's played with uh, kernel knows that uh, higher control is going to be a huge can of worm when you look at the drivers and shit. And for instance, with Pledge, you can say, okay, I don't want to do anything with device drivers, but I have to handle TTYs. I need to be able to set TTYs to blocking, non-blocking, echo, whatever that stuff, and nothing else. And you can do that. Uh, more or less, we have about everything in the base system using Pledge. And all important ports uh, have been converted to use it as well. So if you have any kind of bug, any kind of, uh, let's say, uh, rope chain uh, intrusion in your software and it tries to do something that it shouldn't do, uh, Pledge will force it to abort in many, many, many cases. So as far as security goes, I think it's a very beautiful feature. And uh, I hope that at some point uh, other people are going to port it to something else, maybe FreeBSD, maybe Linux. That would be a good idea. Even though I don't really see it happening because uh, Linux is a jungle. It's not really uh, something where you can uh, actually make something happen at the time, for the time being, I think. Interesting perspective. Who wants to go next? So I'm going for... OpenBSD. From what I've been able to tell over the last few years, there's, there's a fair number of small features in OpenBSD that have been clearly conceived, probably at least in part out of a desire to kind of minimize the amount of tech support requests that get posted to MISC, you know, the MISC mailing list yeah. and probably other lists on that site. So things like the installer being a very step-by-step -step thing. I think OpenBSD is the only one that ships with a, with window managers by default out of the BSDs, I think. No, we, we have possibly, window managers. Possibly, possibly not. I might be wrong. Sorry, who was that? Uh, NetBSD this, ships with a window manager too. Um, by default? Yeah, CTWM. C oh, okay. Okay. So, we actually okay, have two window point, managers but, by default. We have a CWM and uh, the old F FVWM, if I remember correctly. Anyway, anyway, so, I mean, yeah. So, but apart from that, um, the command line utility is very simple. I mean, anyone who's already familiar with the typical kind of Unix-like commands, like the general fastest commands, will probably be will probably find OpenBSD very easy, really, in general. So, interesting. If I can add a snide remark, when you look at macOS, usually. Uh, you are looking at the kernel and saying blah blah blah, it's FreeBSD more or less. And when you look at userland and uh, you try to, to start from the command line, you figure out that you got something that is hopelessly outdated. Like most commands uh, haven't been updated for about 20 years. The main pages are crap, completely out of date and everything. The user interface, the graphical part is nice, but uh, if you want to do any kind of uh, actual administration, like not Windows administration, but uh, real stuff. Uh, in my opinion, macOS is crap. 
it's it's a very proprietary approach to something called a Unixoid operating system. Yes, I agree. When when you said when you look at this, you're using that. When you look at that, you're using this. It reminded me of the Netflix story. When you're selecting a movie on Netflix, when you're browsing them and looking at the little bits and pieces that describe the movie, you're on AWS. Once you press play and you're streaming a movie, that's all FreeBSD. Yes, as a matter of fact. I think the last remaining person without pointing him out is, is Nia. Nia, do, do you want to share anything? Um, yeah, I, I think the most standout points for NetBSD would be, from my side, would be it has excellent support for ARM as like a first-class architecture. So if you have any small ARM devices, I would I would recommend trying NetBSD out on them because it's just cute and fun to use, and it's nice to try different things. Um, we've already discussed the big technical things like ZFS, but I'd also bring up things like... Um, say, the different firewalls the BSDs have. I, I've tried several of them. I think NPF is quite nice. Um, it's there, there are lots of different firewall options if you use the BSDs. And um, I, I've, I've already brought up all of the things like I think NetBSD has a very good balance of performance and security features. But also, I just... I'd just say it's a good good option if you want to really experience like a classic Unix system. Okay, all of the all of these different flavors and varieties have their pros and cons. Needless to say, Linux actually over the years has brought quite a few concepts from the BSDs of the world. Um, the Berkeley packet filter comes to mind. Needless to say, but that's another story for another episode. What I'm interested to hear is actually how does the community, as in the panel present on this episode, perceive the more and more forthcoming, for want of a better expression, integration with components? Let me shell out one example. If you take a look at the GNOME project, it's more and more moving towards system D, which is one of the standard init architectures running on Linux these days. So it might be very difficult in the future to port GNOME to something called BSD. Um, any takes, any opinions on this? Are you saying that in order to have GNOME, we're going to have to have system D? Pretty much, if I read the writings on the wall correctly. Speaking of writing, if anyone wants to become familiar with SystemD, they should read a book by Michael W. Lucas called Savaged by SystemD. And uh, that should give you a good introduction to SystemD and what you can be in for if you start using it. I would be more worried about things like GTK3 uh, uh, becoming dependent on SystemD because GTK is kind of in loads of, I mean, it's in both the main web browsers and loads of other kind of graphical apps. Not, not, I wouldn't, I mean, I would say GNOME is, I mean, it's kind of nice to have on an accessibility point of view, but it's not, not, not quite the end of the world, I would say. I, I, I don't see why software has to become reliant upon system D. 
I know systemd is much bigger than rc.d, for example, but I don't see why software should become reliant upon rc.d. rc.d is a way to start your daemons and stop your daemons and interact with them and get them the the configuration settings they need. But you can also run those daemons without rc.d. No, but that's not that's not a problem at all. Actually, I've been talking with the people who are porting GNOME on OpenBSD, and it's indeed an issue. It has nothing to do with starting services. It has everything to do with uh, stuff like um, looking at user configuration and shit like that. Uh, it's been traditionally very difficult on Unix systems uh, to do that kind of stuff portably uh, from a graphical interface. And uh, it seems that apparently systemd kind of makes it easier in some cases. And you are starting to have some GNOME basic libraries uh, which are depending on this stuff to fully work. And this is indeed an issue. There was some project to try to do some kind of systemd stub library to be able to still run uh, all those GNOME support libraries if you are not running systemd, but I don't know where this is going. On so the, currently, one... we're having to like patch in lots of stuff that they've removed, like console kit support, which is yeah, basically sure. portable login D, really. It sounds like so, poor design decisions. Yeah, but uh, we're talking no and GTK. Uh, have you looked at the code recently? Like, if you're trying to, to find anything in the JLib code or GIMP, for instance, it's a, it's a complete nightmare. It's uh, indirection versus indirection. And, well, for starters, doing object-oriented work in C, it's completely crazy. And uh, systemd is a big blob of shit as well. So, yeah, what do what do you expect? But uh, more or less, it works for them at least. And uh, you have this, uh, in my opinion, huge camp of Linux people who just want to be Windows. Interesting. And so you're moving to the same kind of interface. And instead of having a huge jungle of if devs to be able to run on anything, which used to be the case 20 years ago, if you looked at uh, extern code 20 years ago, for instance, uh, now you have this uh, huge blob, systemd, which offers you some interface which say, hey, uh, you want to look at user, you want to look at configuration, you want to look at the date and time and everything. Come on, I've got the API for that. So we 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 are going probably to to need to do something about the, about it at some point. Uh, on the other side, I think that. When it becomes necessary, there's going to be some people who are going to say, okay, it's not possible to uh, no longer have a new GNOME version running on BSD. So, yeah, we have to have some kind of uh, stub library that uh, that works for us. And possibly we'll get something that's uh, the best of both worlds, which means that we will still have somewhat secure systems because systemd is a joke. Uh, and I, I'm saying this seriously. What do you expect? You are going to run a whole set of things that have access to, to the full system as a set of shared library uh, under root. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to anybody who's doing uh, any kind of secure coding. And uh, on the other side, you want to have a simple interface that uh, allows you to do modern stuff that, uh, that Windows has been doing for 10 years. 
with all the security holes that entails. So maybe we'll get some shims that uh, actually provide us with the same interface, but with some amount of security. I don't know. Leonard Petring, if you're listening, don't go near the BSD people. Just my two cents on the whole story, but jokes aside. Um, oh, ju- ju- just in case he doesn't know, it's very <laughs> definitely hated by a lot of us. It's really, uh, yeah, it's a, it's really a shit show. I, I still don't understand how the Linux people uh, manage to get that cool going and uh, all of the shit. Come on. Like, like the stuff about logging starting with, uh, with numbers and you can become out and, uh, that's not his issue. Come on. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It's not a proper developer in my opinion. I reckon this whole thing goes back to the fact that, okay, full disclosure for those people who don't know it, Lana Petring is still, is, is still working for Red Hat. So I think, I think if I recall correctly, Fedora was the first Linux that had systemd on board. There was quite a few alternatives at the time, and we're talking about six, seven years back. Canonical had something called Upstart, the likes of Arch at the time, and all the rest of, of the kind of other distributions were still relying on the system V in it. But over time, people perceived the advantages of system D, which has progressively becoming, I'm tempted to say, the Swiss army knife of Linux for doing all sorts of things as a main advantage with regards to packaging and kind of using functionality in terms of having a single API, as you just pointed out a couple of minutes ago, to avail of system services and to inquire about system states as the way forward. Hence, more and more distributions adopted it until such time when quite, when still a few, when when a few distributions said this is this is not our game enough of it and forked and Dev one in the Debian world probably would be the best example for this, but of course the problem is that more and more subsystems I'm tempted to say for 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 want of a better expression here like GNOME and some other software and, and some other code bases rely on systemd to function properly. And I'm just curious, would, I mean, in, 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 in the Linux world, GNOME has quite a steady hold with regards to desktop space. For example, Ubuntu's standard desktop is based on GNOME, is based on GNOME shell. I take it it's quite different in the BSD world. Maybe somebody can, can, can shed some more light on kind of the window management aspects of, of BSD and if there's any standard that the BSD people have, maybe it's that's worth discussing? Well, you, you brought up Red Hat, and I think that's that's a good good thing to touch on because Red Hat are funding a lot of these very large open source projects now, which no, allow best example, to, like, yes. to like coordinate changes and push things that, well, Red Hat employees want into the into the open source space. I think there used to, probably used to be more counterbalance there. Like, I think... Um, Sun Microsystems used to have a lot of involvement, but of course they're dead now. And um, they would have, of course, if things have to run on Solaris, they have to be portable. Um, I, I would, in in NetBSD's case and in OpenBSD's case, we both ship Xorg as part of the system. And um, there's the question of what we're going to do in the future if, say, I, I think a big worry for me personally is if um, is, is if GTK goes ahead and says, okay, 
we've we've decided that X11 is deprecated and we're going to remove support from for X11 in GTK and none of your apps work anymore. That's that's going to be a huge transition that we're going to have extreme difficulty with because. Well, the protocol is designed around Linux, and it has quite a lot of assumptions about Linux's input stack baked it right into it. By the way, does Wayland run on BSD uh, or on, on ABSD? Yes, but with lots of like shims and compatibility layers, or mm-hmm. lots of patching. Interesting. Okay, because Wayland. this is yeah, this is becoming more and more the standard window manager on Linux systems. Uh, sorry, you it's mean you said we have it's, it's, it's a display called protocol, isn't it? And then yep. it's implemented by so-called Wayland compositors. Uh, sorry, yes, it's a protocol rather. Sorry, not, not a Windows system. Sorry, yes, I do apologize. Uh, I, I, I probably should be more specific. It's a it's a windowing protocol similar to X11, mm-hmm. but without the, for example, network transparency that X11 brings to the table. Well, I don't think that uh, well, most people have uh, network transparency disabled on uh, Xons these days. In any case, and hence the perceived need by the community for something called Wayland, because as you rightly pointed out, most people run X11 applications on their on their desktop, so there's no need for the performance impact or tiny performance impact, let's put it this way, that X11 has by using a full-blown TCP IP stack in, in terms of network, network transparency. So and that's exactly where kind of Wayland comes into play. It's not network transparent. You can only run it locally, uh, mm-hmm. and it has quite a few disadvantages in comparison to X11. But more and more distros are, are adopting this as their main windowing protocol, let's put it this way, Plus the compositing managers surrounding Wayland, the Kwinds of the world, and and other stuff. Sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm not quite sure what problems it actually solves. Uh, we are sometimes talking about security, but uh, basically most security issues lie with the graphics card and the, the DRI graphics driver in any case. So. Uh, you've got this uh, big blob of uh, untrusted code that runs on your GPU and that has access to the full memory of your machine in many cases. It bypasses DME and everything. And yeah, sure, Wayland is supposed to, to, to uh, that each window can talk to, to another window unless they say so. But frankly, there are issues, uh, security issues, they, they lie much deeper than that. So I'm not quite sure. Any other opinions on this topic before we move on? I've worked with Wayland quite closely in the process of porting it to NetBSD, and I kind of have to agree. It's it's um, it's too loosely defined. There are lots of protocol incompatibility issues still, and it's just not as powerful. It's like kind of just a downgrade in in terms of its feature set, and. X11 is is the standard for for Unix, and I very much hope it doesn't go away. Interesting perspective, and maybe the Linux people should take notes. One feature in GNOME that I'm aware of that uh, only exists on Wayland at the moment, I think, was like fractional scaling, where not only having, you know, the, the kind of the standard. 
I don't know if it's even the standard, but whatever you want to call it, 96 DPI, like on X.org server, you only have, you know, that or two times, three times, four times. And, but of course, many laptops are, you know, probably better suited for like 1.5 times or something like that. And for whatever reason, Gnome has, you know, frack, you know, is able to scale to that sort of figure on Wayland. But I don't know what's different, like, on a technical side, that makes that possible, but I've, um, that's well, the only thing that I'm aware of that's different. <laughs> from what you say, it sounds more like uh, the people who are writing the drivers for X11 haven't done the, the work, and that's it. I see absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be able to composite uh, X11 windows to whatever ratio you want uh, on the graphics card. You have enough memory for it, it's fast enough. Your GPU is going to do all of the work. Uh, mm. They already do that for for video all the time these days. So uh, just implement it, and it should work. <laughs> I mean, pull requests. Uh, I take it are being accepted. <laughs> okay, that has been more than interesting. Final question from my side because we are rapidly approaching the three-hour mark. No, I'm joking, but <laughs> I reckon. Where do you see this whole BSD thing going in terms of OpenBSD, <laughs> FreeBSD, and AppBSD? And we haven't even touched on the, the on the, for example, on the security advantages of something of something called OpenBSD. But we'll leave, but we're going to leave it at that. So, final question: the road ahead, especially in the light of the mounting adoption. Let's put it this way: over the last five to ten years of Linux on an enterprise basis, especially if you take a look at something called other people's computers, also commonly known as the cloud. BSD is dying, Netcraft confirms it. <laughs> Sweet and short, okay. Maybe there are additional opinions or maybe elaborations of that, of that, of, of that remark. <laughs> I think people have been saying that BSD is dying for the past 30 years. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, we'll be around long into the future and we'll keep attracting new, new users and, and lots of interest into the future because people like different things. People don't like monocultures. Yeah. Like I, like I be a mainframes more or less. No, I'm joking, but you, but you know what I mean. Sorry, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, but uh, there's more or less uh, that specific point, which is that uh, I don't think that lots of people are going to use uh, OpenBSD directly in the future. Uh, we're more or less an experimental OS. Everything works for me, and uh, I'm fine with it. But I know that we have some limitations, like our. Symmetric uh, multiprocessing is not quite up to par yet. And sometimes we support hardware better than uh, other systems. At some point, we were better on uh, Wi-Fi than uh, Linux. Yeah, seriously, 10 years ago, that was more or less the case. No surprise but we, there. <laughs> we still uh, do interesting developments and uh, build pieces of software that you end up using wherever you are, like uh, the most famous instance, of course, is OpenSSH. But you have some other pieces of uh, OpenBSD on your system. It took a lot of time, but uh, STL copy is everywhere these days. Finally, uh, when finally Ulrich Draper left the, Unix, the Linux kernel and the JLibc, it finally invaded Linux as well. And some other experiments, which... Uh, 
are used uh, elsewhere. On a more systematic basis between BSDs, uh, even though we are different systems, we do talk to each other and we spy on whatever is going on on the other. Spy? So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We look at, we look at commits and uh, it's all under a BSD license. So uh, you just have to, to put the proper attribution and you can steal whatever fuck you want and it's just okay. It's how it's supposed to be to be done. So we are still moving forward, and uh, I think that from time to time, uh, Linux and other systems do steal from us. Uh, I seem to remember that at some point in the past, uh, Windows stole our whole uh, network stack, for instance. Mark, I think the word they, that they you're looking for is collaboration, not spying. <laughs> But that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> Whatever, it's more or less the same. Sometimes you collaborate without actually talking to each other. You just look at the commits and say, hey, that's a good idea. I could probably reuse that. And when you're nice enough, you, you send an email to say, thank you. It was a really, really nice piece of code and uh, we are going to make good use of it. I mean, you do have exchanges between the Linux world and the OpenBSD world, and OpenSSH probably is, is probably the best example for this, or OpenSSL for that matter. Any other takes on this subject? Code sharing, as mentioned, is really the answer here. And I think that in the Linux community, there's this real fear of forking and this kind of paranoia that as soon as a as soon as a piece of software is forked then the effort is going to be split and everyone's going to, everyone's going to suffer as a result but i i think we kind of with the amount that the bsds are sharing and um getting from each other i think that's that's not really true not everyone wants to eat the same flavor of chocolate for another problem <laughs> the problem with Linux is somewhat different, in my opinion. I think that it, it has more to do with uh, binary compatibility and commercial issues. Like, uh, some parts of uh, Linux are actually completely stale. Like, these days, it's, as far as I know, it's impossible to add a new system call to Linux because it would break everything binary-wise. And you have uh, enough companies uh, with vested interests in uh, keeping binaries running that uh, some parts of Linux are getting really hard to change. And we are we don't have this kind of problem most of the time. Well, you don't have a benevolent dictator for life, right? Uh, sorry, you, you, there are, of course, kernel maintainers on the Linux side. But at the end of the day, Linux is still calling the shots. Um, this is not the case in the BSD ecosystem, is it? Because you 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 all pretty much do your own thing. Oh, we have a dictator in OpenBSD. Sorry, we have a dictator in OpenBSD. You do, uh, okay? Well yeah, I see. Right. Uh, come on. <laughs> you disagree with him? We uh, you're usually out of a project if you disagree violently enough. <laughs> I think FreeBSD has the reputation of being the longest continuously um, uh, in charge. It's had the most number of, t of teams. I'm trying to think of the proper word. Governance. The govern longest continuously governed project, I think. Um, it's, it's long had a core team that, that was more or less in charge of everything. It, it has a very good transition. Um, And that just keeps rolling over. 
just out of curiosity, the kernel code base between the different BSDs is the same? No. Nope. You, so you all have your own kernels, okay. Oh, yes. Yes. We we have uh, some shared code, like you are going to find some drivers which are mostly the same from one BSD to, to the next. Okay. And we have uh, the same ancestors, like for instance, our uh, old file system, uh, UFS and FFS, it's mostly the same code. Uh, some of us uh, in OpenBSD are still uh, scratching our hair, trying to figure out what Marshall McCusick did a long time ago. Okay. But uh, yeah, we, we diverge uh, a great deal. We, we, if you look at any uh, BSD code, you will more or less recognize the, the, the same things, but there are common parts, there are differences. Different kernels, uh, different userlands, uh, common ancestry, let's say. Just out of curiosity, because Linux has one trait, and this is the reason why Richard M. Storman still likes to call it GNU slash Linux, because the user land, in terms of at least the command line, is heavily dependent on GNU software. If memory serves correct, you are still using GCC as a standard compiler on BSD, but what about nope. the rest? You're not. No, nope. okay. nope. we've been on Silang for about five years, I think. Right, okay. I know that Apple made that move quite quite some time ago, but, I'm, but I wasn't too sure about the rest of the BSD ecosystem, okay. That's interesting, okay. Because of why? Because of technic, te, te, um, technical superiority or why? Why did you make because that move? Because of the license, because the so, FSF, okay. they, tried, they tried to pull wow. the first one when we when we moved to GPL v3 and OpenBSD got fucked. We had to stick with uh, GCC okay. 4.2.1 for a very long time because it was the last uh, compiler, GCC compiler with a GPL v2 license, and finally we were able to move to Silang on uh, most architectures. We still wow. ship GCC, uh, let's say, as a backup compiler. Let's say if you want to debug stuff and it works slightly differently so that you can find some differences. But uh, at least on um, Intel processors, everything is compiled with uh, Silang these days. Okay. And linked with uh, LLVM uh, linker as well. Interesting. We, and what, we have and, moved and, completely yeah. away from GCC. Wow. And what about the rest of the user lands, like standard utilities like LS, Move, or whatever? Or Well, there's a BSD star, of course. But uh, what about... At yeah. least on, at least on OpenBSD, most everything is uh, BSD licensed. Uh, the, okay. Well, there is Perl in uh, our base system, but uh, we are not using it under the GPL license since it's dual license and you've got the artistic license which is very close to yes. um, to the BSD license. I think that from the start one of the goals of OpenBSD was to have everything under an acceptable license and uh, uh, if not possible we would uh, resort to GPL v2 and uh, at some point okay. the whole running system was uh, BSD with a compiler being uh, GPL and stuff like that. And I think that these days we have managed to have more or less the, the base running system is more or less entirely uh, BSD, I think. And what about the other, is BSD. Yeah. And what about the other BSDs? Same, 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 same user land? 
like most, like all code bases, but essentially BSD license. Yes, um, essentially, essentially everything, bar a few things. We we don't have as much of a strict licensing policy as OpenBSD, and uh, we we use GCC because some some processor architectures we support are only supported by GCC. Okay. And but apart from the tool chain, yeah, um, basically everything is BSD MIT under similar licenses. I just okay. I just checked a FreeBSC 13 and a FreeBSC 12.2 host here, and they both are running CLang version 10 and CLang, uh, I missed it, CLang 11, 11.01, respectively. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry. No, that's a very interesting perspective because, as I said, Linux is pretty much dominated by the GNU user, by the GNU user land, and of course, the GNU code bases are GPL licensed, as is the Linux kernel, of course. It, it also means that it, it also means that when it comes time to make a kernel decision, you're not worried about breaking user land because it's your user land. You yep. don't have to worry about all the different repo uh, repo repos distros breaking because you can fix it right here and now and move on with life. I mean, there are no such things as as OpenBSD distributions, right? There's an OpenBSD, there's a FreeBSD, and there's NetBSD, and that's about it. In Linux, from, time to time, from time to time, you have people who are trying to make some uh, derivative distributions. I don't know if PCBSD exists, still exists. Uh, you have some, but yeah, you, you might have some derivative distributions, but more or less there is, uh, one official distribution and that's it. There's something called Hello System, which I think is a, is FreeBSD based. And you said, uh, PCBSD. I think that's, it, it renamed. That's from IX Systems, isn't it? Didn't they rename themselves? True OS? I'm not sure. It also reminded me of, of Fris, Frisbee, F-R-E-S-B-I-E. I think um, Max ran that, and it allowed you to create your own bootable ISO of FreeBSD with other things you wanted in it. Interesting. Okay. The nomenclature of distributions and the GNU Linux naming dispute, seem for both of them seem to be a symptom of a debate as to whether you know, Linux itself should actually be called an operating system itself. Because, I mean, one could easily make the argument that, you know, Debian is an operating system, Fedora is an operating system, you know, Ubuntu is an operating system, rather than, distrib I mean, distributions is a name that just seems to have arisen. Because it's Linux is referred to as an operating, well, at least a family of operating systems, and... It just, it just needed to be another term to differentiate everything that comes that's you know based on it. I mean that's a very interesting perspective because if you take a close look at the history of Linux, I mean it started out as a terminal emulator and then Linux took a close look at Linux and didn't like it, so the rest is on Usenet and the operating system was and all the rest of it. Kids, the links may be in the show notes, depending on whether I'm up to it or not. But at some stage, basically, big enterprise moved in, the Red Hats and the other people and, and the canonicals of the world. 
And not before long, you had a set of standards like the file system hierarchy, the Linux standard base, and all the rest of it that almost all distributions adhere to. And of course, you had big money in the shape of, of Red Hat and Canonical moving into that market. Mark Shuttleworth took a close look at Debian, liked it, and that's essentially the basis for Ubuntu these days. Mm. Now, Red Hat still has this playground called Fedora. I won't go into the CentOS debacle because that in-laws is not a CentOS show. But yes, never mind the Linux Foundation. If you take a look at their sponsoring page, who's a member and what money flows into that organization, this is clearly big business moving in. And I reckon this is, at least from a commercial perspective, the main difference between between the BSDs of the world and Linux, because Linux these days is all about enterprise deployments, the cloud containers and all the rest of it all runs Linux. I was to say, Android apparently isn't a Linux distribution, or at least it doesn't seem to be, uh, like, I don't know, commonly known as one anyway. It, well, it seems to be able to just stand on its own, even though, I mean, okay, it, it it's kind of a rolling, from what I'm, I'm aware of, it's kind of a rolling fork of, of its, its version of Linux is kind of a, is not, is, is, more different than most other OS's implementation of Linux anyway. So apparently it's not generally uh, referred to as a Linux distro, but then where where is everyone supposed to draw the line? Indeed, Patrick. I was just going to touch upon this because if you take a close look at the system architecture of something called Android, you still have a full-blown Linux kernel underneath it. But the rest of the user land, and that's exactly your your main differentiator here, is quite different. Uh, you have a different inner system. You have something called Zygote that is actually in charge of spinning up processes. I'm simplifying things, of course. And then you have this main driver called JVM. Uh, sorry, it's not called JVM. It's it's Art or it's Dalvik or whatever you want to call it these days. It depends on your on your Android version. But at the end of the day, the commonality is, is something called the AOSP, the Android Open Source Project, because this that's exactly the code base that Google couldn't make proprietary or Android for that matter, because it's all GPL licensed. And if you actually have a phone in front of you, if you managed. If you manage to connect this phone to a computer, if you turn on with a USB cable, for example, if you turn on USB uh, debugging on this phone, you still have a command line in front of you once you invoke ADB shell. And of uh, ADB, of course, standing for the Android debugging bridge. So at the very core, it's still a Linux system. GP, mostly GPL license and the similar to, or I'm, I'm almost tempted to say similar to the OS X uh, architecture, the rest is proprietary crap. Namely the stuff basically that, that Google put on top in terms of the user interface, the, the virtual machine that executes Java, bytecode and all the rest of it. Is it still going to be Linux in the future? It seems like Google is getting sick of Linux and then using, moving towards their own thing future. Yes, uh, Fusion is a different <laughs> is a different story. Google has copped onto the fact that AOSP has one significant disadvantage: it's licensed because it's Linux. At the end of the day, it's, it's licensed under GPL, whereas Fusion actually, I think, is licensed under BSD or MID license, which is much more permissive. So the the smartphone 
manufacturers who basically take the OSP um, and the Google ecosystem running on top of it and do something themselves with it. Like, for example, Samsung has their own user interface. I don't even, call, I can't even recall what it's called. But if you take a close look at quite a few smartphone manufacturers, they all do, they all do their own thing. And I reckon with the dominance of Google in the Android Tyson. market, Tyson, thank you very much. With the dominance of a company called Google in the smartphone market, this is essentially the driver that made them basically do their own thing in terms of coming up with a much more permissive license operating system base going forward than basically the smartphone manufacturers could use not to be bound by the GPL under which the majority of the of the AOSB code base is licensed. It's just a matter of time, I reckon, before you see that switch happening from the AOSP, which, as I said, is mostly Linux-based, to, to something called Fushia. I would like to see Android phones get security updates faster or at all. Um, there doesn't seem to be a long life for a given Android phone it's a, getting it's, it upgraded. Yeah, it's a B2C market. I mean, you're looking, you're looking at about what? Maybe a year, maybe two years of, of the shelf life of a smartphone. Because after that, it's being replaced by something else. So why Be bother? Here. No, 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 no. I disagree. I still have iPhone 5s and iPhone 7s that are perfectly functional and they still receive updates. Yes, but that's <laughs> Apple. That's not Google. Oh, that's not Samsung. Oh, that's not Motorola or something. This is why why I specifically mentioned Android. Yes. Did you hear about Pegasus? I didn't hear what you said. Pegasus. Pegasus. Yes, I did. Yeah, especially iOS and. Can you maybe for the two people in the audience who do not know what Pegasus is, maybe you can elaborate, please, Mark. Oh, it's uh, big news these days. Like, uh, we just found out that uh, some uh, Israeli people have been using Pegasus to spy on uh, journalists in France and in, uh, in other places, among other things. And uh, as far as I remember, they have been using uh, zero days on uh, iOS phones. So, yeah, I think both Android and iOS systems are affected. Yeah, but uh, both are affected more or less because uh, this is still uh, stuff with uh, closed uh, source software. I don't mean that uh, open source is uh, perfectly safe, but uh, if you can't even look at uh, at the software, you you have absolutely uh, no reason to think that it's going to be secure, especially when you're looking at uh, uh, state uh, spying on each other. I mean, that's to, a whole um, different debate, but <laughs> maybe subject for another show. I, I, I don't see a, how you can trust a phone that's manufactured by the, the United States or uh, of, or Korea uh, to be perfectly safe, or China, for that matter. Buy your own kit and do your own OS running on top of that kit. Uh, mm-hmm. Just make sure that you have the blobs in place for the SOC. This is, not, this, this is not something you can do specifically because you have lots. Yes, that's you exactly know. it, yes. How much longer is it going to be possible to install your OS and how long will it take for them to decide it's too unsafe to allow users that much freedom? Good question. This is precisely why we should be continuing to be doing what we do and fight for it. 
so that this doesn't ever happen, that you can still uh, tinker and do your own OS and do your own hardware and do open source stuff. That's, I reckon, precisely the difference between something called the BSDs of the world, as in these days, not not back in the olden days, and something called Linux. Apart maybe from a few corners in the Linux empire that still think along the same lines, I might add. To, to answer the question, Pegasus is a spyware that was created by an Israeli cyber arms firm called NSO Group. Mm-hmm. And it can Convert, covertly installed on mobile phones and other devices. Both I'm reading iOS, from the Wikipedia yes. page. Both iOS as well as Android systems, yeah. yes. And it was first discovered, uh, let me see here. Uh, I had this. Oh, discovered in August 2018. Okay, guys. Unfortunately, we have to wrap this up because we have been recording now for almost one and a half Oops. hours. No worries. Any final statements before we close off the show? I have one, but I'll go last. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Any any prior takers? I would like. I would just like to say, run BSD, stop fascism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Any other I takers think... before the last statement? <laughs> I, I think I've been doing enough trolling for tonight, so just try BSD and see if you like it. I really haven't heard any trolling today. None. None whatsoever. Run BSD, stop fascism. Yes. It's all free opinions and all the rest of it, yes. Yep. Now for, for for the very final remark, Dan. I want to correct something in my opening statement. I started with open open source software in 98, not 1995. If you want to have a better overview of the history of BSD, I suggest you look for a YouTube video called A Narrative History of BSD by Dr. Kirk McCusick. That will get you well into the door. Uh, If you want to hear more about a BSD uh, perspective on SystemD, look for a YouTube video by Bino Rice, sorry, Benno Rice, called The Tragedy of SystemD. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look at how much BSD is evolving, go back 10 years, look at the size of the dev teams, go now, look at the size of the dev teams. Dev teams don't increase without interest. People join dev teams because they are interested in the product and they want to work on the product. And that's how you keep a project self-sustaining is by having a growing user community and development community. Strong words, softly spoken, I'm tempted to add. I'd just like Guys, to actually yes. um, be serious for a moment. And I, I referenced a talk earlier called The Rise and Fall of Copyleft by Robert Ladley. And if the, the audience is particularly interested in the history of open source and of copyrights and licenses, I'd recommend listening to it. Details of all of these projects and pointers, of course, will be in the show notes. People, first of all, a big thank you to the panel. That has been more than interesting, especially given the fact that this is probably an outsider's take on the whole Linux ecosystem that has been more than refreshing. And I would like to thank each and every one of you for participating. And with that... I would like to close the show. Thank you very much for being on the panel, being part of something called Linux Linux in-laws, and 
maybe we get another show on the BSD ecosystem in a few years' time and we'll have you on another show. And thank you for participating. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank Thank you for listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution, share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margo, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under Creative Commons at Gemando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. What is your name? Sorry, my name is Chris. Because you're up as Marshall McCusick. Yes, that was a a joke. (laughs) Okay. Because when I first saw that, I said, okay, Kirk is here. What's going on? Yeah, I I just jumped when I saw the user list. Yeah, but you know this is not Kirk. It's not the same voice. Come on. Yeah, but (laughs) his name could have been Marshall McCusick. So BSD... Although I'm not using it on a regular basis, has been with me for the last forty years easily. For, oh, sorry, thirty years. Sorry, I use some Unix somewhere in university, and I I can't really remember much about it. Yeah, my my, my first Unix machine was in 1987, and I think the three that was. Probably in 1988 or something like that. Interesting. That uh, that was actually in 87. That was the first time when I compiled an Emacs version on something called Solaris. Or SunOS, it was then called. SunOS, yeah. Solaris was was still a few years in the future. SunOS, sorry. And that was actually my, my, my introduction to something called free and open source software back in 87. I've been using open source software ever since. The concept is great. The GPL is uh, not so great. Let's see. <laughs> you see, Richard M. Stallman may think differently about this. <laughs> I'm not really concerned about what that gentleman thinks. Gentlemen? Calling him a gentleman might be a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Do okay, I know guys. how to troll or what? Bye. Keep trolling, Mark. Don't stop. (laughs) No problem. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. 
If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.